0: Today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You're probably wondering, what in the world are they doing back there right now? Man, sounds like they're having fun. But hopefully, you guys will have not as much fun, but you'll find that this time will be redeemable because you're probably thinking, I wish I could go back there. My kids sound like they're having so much fun. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we worship our great God together, especially if you happen to be here for the first time. If you're here as a, as, a, as a guest, if a family member, if a friend, coworker invited you to come, and if you're considering the claims of Christianity, let me just say welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so honored to have you join us today, and we hope and pray that our time together will not only be educational, but also even persuasive when you consider the claims of Jesus. So, without further ado, would you bow your heads with me and pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. In fact, Lord, we thank you for every single day, although there are moments where we find it very hard to be thankful, Lord, we are fully aware that you are a God who is good and that you bless us. Even in seasons of sorrow, even in seasons of pain, God, you somehow manifest your faithfulness. Though it takes some time, though sometimes it even has to wait until the storm is over we look back and we see a track record of your continued faithfulness and so lord with that past knowledge help us to move forward into the future where we are confident in your promises to us lord we especially want to pray for those among us who are here as our guest for those investigating the claims of christianity we hope and pray that today's word will not only instruct about the claims of jesus but more importantly It would help them to see Jesus the way that he should be seen as the hope of the world, the ruler of all, and the one to whom we were created to worship and adore forever and ever. Oh, Father, would you please now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me ask you guys a question this morning. You ever stand in front of the mirror and you look at yourself, and the immediate reaction is this, You ever do that? You ever check yourself out in the mirror and the only words coming into your mind at that moment as you're looking at yourself is this, meaningless, meaningless, all of this is just meaningless. You ever do that? You ever just kind of look at yourself and you get so dissatisfied with what you are looking at? You know, you look at a certain part of your body or maybe all of your body and you are just so discouraged because you think one part of your body is too big, another part of your body is too small, and you get so overwhelmed to the point where you just want to say, gosh, gosh. I'm so frustrated. You know, we live in a world that makes us sigh so much, but one of the hardest things to accept sometimes is that one of the things that make us sigh so much is the person that we're looking at in the mirror. Because when we look at the mirror, we are confronted with the person that has flaws. We are confronted with a person who fails in areas that they're trying to succeed in. We are confronted with a person to where no matter how hard they try to better themselves, it all seems solved for naught. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All of this is vanity. And so, as a result, we sigh. And yet, with all the self-scrutiny that we put ourselves upon as we look at ourselves in the mirror, there is one part of our body that we hardly get bothered by at all, and yet the Bible says we should be bothered by it the most. And no, I'm not talking about that very wide nose on your face. I'm not talking about that triple chin that you've been trying to get rid of since New Year's. No, I'm talking about the part of the body known as the mouth. The mouth, yes. That orifice that's in the middle of your face to where you shovel food in and kiss your loved ones with. The mouth. According to the Bible, the mouth is the most dangerous part of the body. Why? Because it's the only part of the body that is capable of producing these things known as words. Words. Wait a minute, Pastor John. Are you telling me that the Bible says the mouth is the most dangerous part of the body because of words? Words can... Can you explain that to me? I will. But first, we're continuing our sermon series through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And the whole point of this book is to address the various things in this life that make us go, (sighs) ha. That make us breathe out that breath of air that reveals our sense of frustration, our sense of failure, our sense of fed-upness as we live in a world that seems so against us. And today, King Solomon, who wrote this book, is going to show us one of the biggest reasons why you and I sigh so much. Namely because of the words that we speak. So... Without further ado, if you're a note taker, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, let's first talk about a particular problem with our words. A particular problem with our words. And afterwards, number two, we're going to talk about the reason for this particular problem with our words. And then finally we'll end it with the only solution... To this particular problem with our words. A particular problem with our words, the reason for that problem, and the only solution to that problem, okay? Let's jump right in. First, a particular problem with our words. Now, our passage for today, Ecclesiastes 5, has a lot to say about words. Words. In fact, the word words itself shows up at least four times in our passage, and if you add to that number the words that are associated with words, words like mouth, words like vow, words like sayings 13 different references 13 different references that Solomon lists out that is associated with this idea about words that's a lot and it can't be a coincidence see Solomon wants to draw our attention to the significance of our words maybe because I don't know if But maybe it's almost as if he anticipated how we today in our culture minimize, we cheapen, we don't draw any attention or significance, we downplay the significance of our words. I mean, don't we do that as a culture? Don't we say phrases like, yo, talk is cheap. Yo, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Or put your money where your mouth is. Or if you're a little bit younger, you guys remember saying this in the playground? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words can never hurt me, or maybe the alternative, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, (laughs) right? Why do we as a culture say these euphemisms about words all the time? Because we carry this assumption that our words are just harmless puffs of air that we audibly hear and nothing more. Isn't that what we assume? But no, 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 no. No, the Bible tells us that our words are very significant. They're very vital to every area of life, even from the most mundane to the most crucial. In his book, The War of Words, theologian Paul David Tripp explains to us about the significance of a word. Listen to what he says in his book. Quote, there is nothing we depend on more than our ability to give and receive communication. Words In quiet conversations over coffee, in anxious conversations in a hospital waiting room, in defending why we are late for a curfew or didn't complete the task at work, we talk. In teaching our children or intervening in an argument, in a lengthy congressional debate, or in an intense discussion with a friend, people talk. In a quiet good night, in words of athletic challenge, in romantic words of love, in words of correction and rebuke, anger and irritation, people talk. Words direct our existence and our relationship. They shape our observations and define our experiences. Words affect all the other things that we do as human beings. Words, end quote. Words are significant. They are significant because we use them in significant ways. And here in our passage, Solomon zeroes in on one particular way in which we signify our words. Listen to what he says in verse 4 to 5. We read, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Come on back. Let me draw your attention to this word that he uses throughout these verses at least five times, and that's the word vow. Vow, hmm, yes, vow. You look it up in a standard dictionary, and what is a vow? Simply put, a vow is a promise. A promise is a vow. A vow is a promise, which therefore begs the further question, well, what exactly is a promise? A promise is a declaration of words that states what you say will happen will actually happen happen. One more time. A promise is a declaration of words that states what you say will happen will actually happen. And notice how Solomon connects this idea of payment with this idea of a vow, of making promises. Listen again to what he says in verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, when you make a promise to God, what does he say? Do not what? Delay in paying it. Interesting. Interesting. Solomon Why are you associating a vow, a promise, with a financial term? What point are you trying to make? What connection are you trying to make with these two ideas? Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound very weird, but I want you to pay careful attention, okay? Because I think this is really the best way for me to explain what Solomon is saying. You ready? Solomon, if I could speak for him, is basically saying this. A promise is like a credit card. Yeah, a credit card. A promise is like a credit card. And you're thinking, what? What's a credit card? You know what a credit card is, that small piece of plastic that we use all the time so we can get things now without having to pay for them now. And how do you do that? Because when you slide that piece of plastic through that machine, you are making a statement. You are making a promissory statement to where I promise that I will pay later what I get to enjoy now. That's what a credit card is. Now, of course, I don't have to tell any of you. Right? How much people get into trouble when it comes to credit cards. Am I right? Because first of all, we max them out all the time buying things we don't even really need. Really? Really? You bought 25 pairs of shoes? You really need 25 pairs of shoes? Really? Really? You bought 19 purses? 19 purses? Why do you need 19 purses? But to make it even worse, we use our credit cards in such a way to where we buy things that we cannot even afford. People are always maxing out their cards. People are always saying they're going to pay for something when in fact they do not. And the reason why is because they have this problem known as limited funds. Maybe you are familiar with that phrase. Maybe a merchant has said that to you recently at a department store. Shame on you if that is the case, which is because that what, what that person is basically saying is you don't have enough money, you're poor. You don't have the funds to back up what you're promising. And Solomon says that is how people are with their promises. Just like people overspend with their credit cards, so many people overpromise with their words. Just like people recklessly spend on things they can't afford to buy, so also people recklessly promise to do things that they will never be able to do. This, my friends, is a particular problem with our words. Now, let me ask you, friend, brother, sister... Do you have this particular problem with words? Do you have a tendency to make certain promises when, in fact, you never intend or cannot follow through on those promises no matter how much you try? You know, one of the ways that you can tell if you suffer from these particular issues with words is if you cannot say another particular word to other people. And that's the word, no. Are you one of those people who has a constant tendency to always say yes to other people because you just can't tolerate the idea of ever saying no to them? It's a more common problem that we see than we would care to admit. When you consider the rate of divorces that we have in our country, when you consider the number of businesses that close down every year, when you consider the number of volunteers that burn out in all these wonderful organizations around the world, people are constantly putting themselves in situations where they overpromise beyond what they're capable of actually fulfilling. And therefore, they end up in relationships they should not be in. They end up in business deals they should not be a part of. They end up with responsibilities that they should not have. So many of us overpromise with our words to where we end up just like we do when we get that monthly credit card statement. We go, oh, why did I do this? Why? And so you sigh. That's a good question, isn't it? Why do you do that? The answer Leads me to my next point, the reason for this particular problem with our words. Read with me one more time, verses 1 to 2 of our passage, where Solomon writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing is evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Here Solomon references another word that you see prevalent in our passage. In fact, in the verses that I just read, we saw it being read three times. In our entire passage, we see it six times, and that's the word God. You see this word scattered over and over, frequently, over and over, God, 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 almost as frequently as you see the word words, words, words. Interesting. Why? That can't be a coincidence. Solomon seems to be hinting that there is some sort of connection, some sort of fabric between the idea of God and words. And the question is, what could that connection be? Well, let me answer that question by asking you a question. Do you guys know who the very first person is in the Bible who speaks the very first words of all? Do you guys know who the very first speaker is in the Bible? Turn with me to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the first three verses, where we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Come on back. God, according to the Bible is the very first speaker of words. He is the original speaker. In fact, he is the creator of words who use words to create. Yeah, he uses words to create. He doesn't use his hands. He doesn't use his arms. He doesn't use his legs. He uses his word. 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 Okay? To create something like a black hole. To create something as delicate as a subatomic particle. He creates it all with his words. What does that tell us about God, particularly about his word? You know what it says about his word? It's powerful. Powerful. Powerful? What do you mean, powerful? Isaiah 55 Starting in verse 10, we read, The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word, says the Lord. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I sent it. In reflecting on this very verse in Isaiah, Theologian John Frame writes this, quote, The power of God's word is nothing less than his own omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. No word of God is too hard for him to accomplish, end quote. In other words, God is so powerful. I mean, he is really, really so powerful that his words are actually capable of doing what it says at that very moment. I mean, just to give you an idea, let me give you a silly illustration. Let's say a crazy 300-pound serial killer is charging at me with an axe right? And I say to him, freeze, Is that word actually going to stop this man? No. And if I think it does, I'm dead, right? But consider for a moment, if instead of me, it's Jesus, and this same crazy 300-pound killer is charging Jesus with an ax, and Jesus just whispers. Let's wait. Let's say, Jesus whispers, That's all. Just freeze. What's going to happen to that killer? Frozen. Rock solid. Gone. Right? That's how powerful the word of God is. Now you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. Nice theological lesson. Thank you very much, pastor. But what does that have to do with my tendency to overpromise and therefore get myself in bad situations? Read again verse 1 and you'll start seeing the connection. Solomon says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. You see that phrase, guard your steps? If I could kind of translate that into our modern parlance, basically what Solomon is saying when he says guard your steps is basically this. Don't go there. Don't you go there. You've heard that phrase before, right? you probably even use that phrase a lot. Don't go there. You're in a conversation with someone, and they start hinting at the possibility of bringing up a sensitive topic or an inappropriate issue, and you know what they're thinking. You know what they're about to say, and you go, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh-uh. Don't even think of going there. What are we saying when we say that phrase? We're giving them a warning, right? We're telling them, look, what you're thinking right now, what you're about to say or what you're starting to say, should never be spoken, should never be thought of. Sarah, my wife, says this to me all the time whenever I ask her this question. Hey, babe, you ever meet someone that you think is so much more attractive than me? She looks at me with a stink eye and goes, don't even go. I always interpret that, how dare you? There could be no man more attractive than you. Don't go there, right? Right, honey? Right? Don't go there. That's what Solomon is saying here when he says, guard your step. Don't go there. Don't go there with what, Solomon? Well, he says in the end of verse 1, the middle of verse 1, the sacrifice of fools. Don't go there with God with the sacrifice of fools? What in the world is a sacrifice of fools? Well, it's not what you think it is it's not a literal sacrifice where you take an animal kill it spill blood on the altar and get atonement for your sins and the reason why i know that is because of what he says right before sacrifice of fools listen what he says to draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools solomon is contrasting as polar opposite listening and sacrifice of fool what is the opposite of listening it's this it's talking too much right it's where you blabber and make extravagant promises, where you over-promise all the time. Solomon, when he's referring to sacrifice of fools, is the folly of making over-inflated, over-promises. Whether it's to other, other people or especially to God. And for those of you here who are investigating Christianity, I mean, you can admit this because everyone does this, Christian and not. Don't we do this all the time, even when it comes to God, even if we're not sure whether or not there is a God? Don't we find ourselves in situations where it's dire, and all of a sudden we get all spiritual. All of a sudden we know how to pray, right? Because you're praying for God to intervene, right? And all of a sudden we ask, God, if you do this, I promise I'll do that. God, if you get me this business deal, I promise Start going to church. No more golf on Sundays. Yes, I'll pack the kids into the minivan and I'll finally go to NCF, even though my friend keeps bucking me to go and I say, No, I gotta golf. No, if you give me this deal, God, I promise I will start going to church every month. Well, at least on Christmas and and Good Friday and Easter. Or, God, if you get me out of this speeding ticket, I swear I'll start serving in toddler ministry. I know Sarah Simon keeps begging me to serve, and I'm like, I don't know if I can do it with kids. I promise, God, if you get me out of this ticket, I will serve in toddler ministry. God, please. What is that? What is that? It's the sacrifice of fools. It's the promise of a fool making a promise that they cannot keep. And why can a fool not keep their promise? Because when a fool makes a promise... They are promising as if they are God. One more time. What makes a fool a fool in their promises is because they are promising as if they are God. Take another listen to what Solomon says in verse 2. He says, be not rationed with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven, and where are you? You are on earth. Question. Why is Solomon stating the obvious here? <laughs> Why is he stating something that we should already know, namely that we are not from heaven, that we are of this earth, namely that we are not God? The answer, because that is exactly what we do when we make our promises. We think we are God when we come to making promises. Or if I could put it this way... We think that our promises are just as good as the promises of God. We think that we're capable of being as true to our word as God is true to our word. That we can make as big of a promise as God does throughout Scripture. You see, the Bible tells us that one of the ways that God displays how powerful he really is is how he always fulfills his promises, how he's always true to his word. That's one of the biggest ways scripture shows us of how powerful he is, that he can make a promise and he will always be true in fulfilling that promise. Which means when you make a promise that's as extravagant as you would see in the words of God... You are claiming a power that you do not possess because you are claiming the power of the divine. You are claiming to be no different to be than God. And we see this God complex being manifested in our culture's promising forms all the time. Case in point, back in the 90s, there was a weird phenomenon that was going around known as the boy bands. The boy bands. You guys remember the boy bands? One very popular boy band was called NSYNC. Anyone remember NSYNC? Some of you are reverting your eyes because you don't even want to admit that you remember listening to NSYNC, right? They had one popular song, I think in their sophomore album or whatever album it was, called This I Promise You. Do you guys remember that? Let me read you a couple lyrics. I'm not going to sing it. It goes like this. I've loved you forever in lifetimes before, and I promise you never... Will you hurt anymore i give you my word i give you my heart this is a battle we've won and with this vow forever has now begun you know if i attempted to talk this way to my wife i think she would slap me across the face and say go feed the kids you know this is just one example of many how in our culture we make extravagant promises as if we are what? A fellow human being? No, as if we are God Almighty. It all stems from this self-deluded God complex that we have in the context of our words, specifically in our promises. Now please, don't misunderstand with what I'm saying. I am not saying, excuse me, I am not saying that God doesn't want us to make promises. He expects us to make promises. He expects us to be fulfillers of our promises. But what he does not want is for us to make promises at a status as if we are equal to him. As if we can fulfill the kind of promises and therefore make the kind of promises that only he is capable of making. Go back to this in sync song. This person, whoever's singing to whoever, are they speaking to this other person as a fellow human being? No, they're speaking to this person as if they are their personal Savior, as if they are Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. This right there is the reason why we have this particular problem with our words, why we overpromise all the time. Because we struggle with what is known as a messianic complex, a Savior complex which is no different than having a God complex. In other words, we make promises that only God can make because we are trying to be someone else's savior, someone else's redeemer, rather than acknowledging and admitting that we are simply not capable of being that person for them. And so we foolishly step in, saying, I will be your hero. I will be your savior. I will be the one to whom you can put all your hopes in, only to end up looking like a fool as well as hurting that person, disappointing them, maybe even shattering their relationship to where all you have left to do is this. (sighs) Here's the question. Is there a way that we can avoid this kind of sighing? Is there a way that we can avoid this kind of outcome? The answer is yes. And the answer leads me to my final point, the only solution to this problem of words. Take one final listen to what Solomon says at the very end of our passage. He says, for when dreams increase... And words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. Here Solomon informs us how we can stop deluding ourselves, or as he puts it, dreaming as if we are someone's savior. And therefore stop what? Growing in our words, i.e. stop making empty overpromises. It begins with what? Fearing God. God is the one whom you must fear. Now that word fear is very important in un- unlocking the meaning of Ecclesiastes. This is a very important word in order to understand the full big picture of what Ecclesiastes is all about, which is why we're going to spend an entire sermon talking about what Solomon is referring to when he talks about fearing God. But for now, let me just explain it this way. When Solomon is talking about fear here, he's not talking about the natural fear that you would feel when someone is pointing a gun at your head ready to kill you. He's not talking about the fear that you would feel as you're at the edge of a cliff at a 500-foot drop with nothing else to hold on to. What is the fear he's talking about? The fear he's talking about is the kind of fear that you would feel when, say, hypothetically, the most beautiful person you've ever seen walks up to you and says, hey, what's your name? It's the fear that you would feel when your most favorite celebrity that you think is so awesome comes up to you and says, I want to marry you. right? Or I want to be your best friend, right? just in case your celebrity crushes a dude right? and you're a guy or vice versa. It's the terror you feel when you're in the presence of utter greatness, great beauty, great talent, great status, and as a result, you feel terrifiedly embarrassed to be you in their presence. Let me say that one more time. The fear that Solomon is talking about is that terror you feel when you're in the presence of someone great, whether great in beauty, great in ability, great in status, that it makes you feel so terrifiedly embarrassed to be you. It's that terror you feel. When you're in the presence of someone so greater than you, so beyond you, so above you, to where you are in such awe that you cannot stand to be reminded of who you are in their presence. That's the fear Solomon is talking about. Excuse me, I have stinging sensations in my eyes for some reason. That's the fear. And Solomon is saying that's the kind of fear you need to have when you approach God. That's the only way that you can stop thinking that you're capable of being the Almighty by being in the presence of the Almighty. Now, you're probably wondering, well, Pastor, what is it about God that I'm supposed to be in awe of? What is it about God that's where I'm simply so overwhelmed by His greatness to where I undeniably know that I'm nowhere near Him to where I can never make promises like He does? Well, let me answer that question by asking you another final question. Do you guys know the first explicit promise God makes to us in the Bible? Do you guys know where the first explicit promise God makes to us in the Bible? It's found in Genesis 3, starting in the eighth verse. We read, when the cool evening breeze were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent, she replied, deceived me. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are accursed more than any animal, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Come on back. Here is the first explicit promise God makes. Not the first promise, but the first explicit promise. It's in the context of him approaching Adam and Eve after they committed what is known as the original sin. And why did Adam commit commit this sin? Because they chose to believe the words of Satan over the words of God. And as a result, it has caused downfall, brokenness everywhere, inside, outside, everywhere among us. But let's go back to this explicit promise in the context of God cursing Satan. What is this explicit promise God makes to humanity? Well, for the sake of time, let me just give you the cliff notes of what God is promising. In Genesis 3, God, in a nutshell, is promising this. I will always love you. Kind of like Whitney Houston sings sometimes. I will always love you. I, I, I will always love you. That's the promise. That's the promise God makes in Genesis 3. That is the promise. He is promising humanity, the same humanity that rebelled against him, the same humanity that curses him by the way that he lived their life, the same humanity that denies his existence. He promises that humanity, no matter what you do, no matter where you've gone, no matter who you've been with, I will always faithfully be your God. I will always love you. I will always be here for you. I will always be faithfully loving you forever. Here's the thing, though. In order for God to fulfill this promise, he had to pay a high cost, right? He would have to relinquish his glory. He would have to throw away his honor as the Almighty God and come into this world as a no-name, naked baby living in a no-name town so that ultimately why? He could be betrayed by his friends. He would be abandoned by his disciples so that he would be publicly beaten and slowly die in front of his mom while his enemies are cheering his slow death. What am I describing? I'm describing the gospel, right? The good news that says, even though you and I are sinners who deserve nothing but to be hated by God, rejected by God, condemned by God, under the wrath of God, God says, no, I'm going to come in I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be Jesus. And I'm going to substitute myself on your behalf to where I suffer humiliation. I suffer condemnation. I suffer judgment. I suffer the wrath. Why, Jesus? So that I could fulfill the promise I made to humanity long ago. I will always, always be your God. I will always love you. And this bond that we have will never be broken. That's why. This is what you and I need to be in awe of. Brothers and sisters, this is what you and I need to be in awe of to the point where we are so terrified to seeing ourselves in the mirror when we consider how we are with God. We need to be so blown away by the extravagant of God's love and the cost that he was willing to go, that he was willing to pay in order to maintain this promise. And let's be honest, none of us in here are willing to meet this kind of promise. None of us in here are willing to love this extravagantly. Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, Paul writes, Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. When you understand this is how great your God loves you, and furthermore, how much he's willing to go in order to keep this promise that he will always love you. You will never, ever make them foolish mistake into thinking that you could make that kind of same promises as he has made to you. NCF, let me ask you this question. Do you get this? Are you aware of this? Because if you're not, Lord help you and those around you to whom you will damage with your empty promises. But blessed are you who do know this. Because that means when you interact with people and they see something in you to where they need hope you're not going to allow them to stay fixated on you you'll always point them to the one to whose promises they really need and it's not your promises they need the promises of God they need the promise of Christ if you do that you will find one less reason to sigh and you will not be the source of sighing to those around you so here's my question look at yourself in the mirror look at that mouth do you find yourself sighing a lot? Do you think about the people that you have lied to, betrayed, or simply flaked out on because you were careless with the words that come out of it? If you do, there's hope. There's hope that in Jesus, God forgives you, but furthermore, he gives you hope that you can point people to him so that instead of them centering you in their world, they will center their lives on the one who is the true hope jesus christ amen let's pray father we thank you so much for your faithfulness and goodness to us by the fact that you are a god who stays true to his word father your word is unbreakable lord you even said that heaven and earth will pass away but your words will never be broken and lord now we see why yes it is because you are powerful but it's also because you are powerful in love lord you are a god who stays true to his word you are a god who keeps true to his promises And, Father, we pray for mercy, for us stepping in and trying to take your place in other people's lives to where not only do we claim to be God ourselves, but we claim to be other people's gods for them. We claim to be their Savior. Father, forgive us of such idolatry. Forgive us of such rebellion and folly. Father, would you guard our hearts from never making the sacrifice of fools, but instead we would be the fool who is made wise because of the one who sacrificed himself for us. Lord, we pray that we would always point people, never to ourselves, but to the one who is always true to his word, as we live in a world filled with so many broken promises and over-inflated words. Father, would you guard our hearts, our minds, and most of all, guard our mouth, to where the only thing that comes out is the praises of the promise-keeping faithfulness of our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.